Hey friends, I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. What have we been watching recently? Anna, what have you been sticking into your eyeballs? I have been watching so many depressing things. Out of the five that I've watched recently, devoured even, four of them were really, really dark, sad, upsetting. I love them all, but they were all of these things. You know Making of a Murderer, right? The true crime series on Netflix. They have a very similar one now. It's new. It's called Killer Ratings in English, but it's a Brazilian show. And it very much follows the same format of Making a Murder and all, all, all of these true crime series that we have now. So it's very American in the way that it presents itself, but it's a Brazilian subject and it's set in Brazil. It's a Brazilian show. The criminal, the supposed criminal is a Brazilian guy. And it's set in the north of Brazil about something that happened there about 10 years ago. And I had not heard of it. I don't want to tell you anything about it because it would spoil all the twists and turns of the story, but it's the most surreal thing I have seen. And it was so good. I really highly recommend it. And if you want to know a little bit more Brazil about corruption and about the way that we live in Brazil, it's just, it felt like home, but also like so fucked up. I loved it. The other one is a BBC show that I think is coming out in America soon. It's called Years and Years by Russell T. Davies. It's about a family and it follows the life of this family starting from five years in the future from now, from our timeline. So in five years, Donald Trump is in the middle of his second run and there's a problem with China and the immigration crisis all over the world. Brexit already happened. It seems there are well within the scope of what could happen because it's just extrapolating for what's happening right now. And it's fucking terrifying. So it's a dystopian thing. But at the center of it is this really lovely, nice family. It's very diverse. It's very, it's, it's just, it's just incredibly well done. And it ended this week and it was superb. And it ends on a very, very hopeful note, but not before it goes really dark. It's terrifying, but so good. And everybody should watch it. Note on this one is that I saw a clip from the show on Twitter where the grandmother is basically reaming her family. And I don't know what this is, but I got to watch it because this lady's me as an old lady. So based on that one clip, I recommend this show and I haven't even seen it. I retweeted that clip. That was from the last episode of the show that aired this week. And both Russell and me were in tears at the end of that scene. Anyway, it's fantastic. As fantastic as Chernobyl, which is all about the crisis of the nuclear plant in in Ukraine back in the 1986. It was so well done. Very tense. One of the best things I've, I've seen recently, for sure. Also on this train of darkness is When They See Us, which is about the Central Park Five. 
it's only four episodes, one hour and a bit each. And I couldn't watch for more than 10 minutes at a time. It was really hard going. Also essential viewing for anyone who wants to understand the world, wants to witness what these boys suffered and understand a little bit more about the complicated justice system in America. Breaking away from this sort of realistic darkness, I have another recommendation, which is unrealistic darkness, but a lot of fun, which is Killing Eve season two. Okay, I love the series so much. I love the two main characters. I especially love the psychopathic villain. And I really want the two characters to get together and go on a killing spree. And I'm like, Anna, what are you talking about? This is awful. (laughs) It's like you cannot wish for these things. Can't you? (laughs) This is what the show makes me do it. (laughs) So these are the things that I have watched recently, Renee. It's a lot. It's a lot. But please go watch all of them. Meanwhile, I see your list is full of light the happiness mostly i've been focusing on steven universe because i have watched the first season of steven universe but i've never gone beyond the first season and i'm working on the scarf that i've been trying to finish for a zillion years and i thought oh i know i'll knit and i'll watch steven universe and so that's what i've been doing i'm on season three now steven universe is both super positive and hopeful, but also has this really dark core at the center of it because it's about an oppressive regime that tried to you know, take over Earth and the rebel group that saved it. I don't think I need to explain Steven Universe to most people who listen to our podcast because Steven Universe is, it's kind of a big deal. The show just makes me feel better. The thing about Steven Universe is that it's a cartoon and it can be really strange. The world of Beach City is just very weird, but not in like a Ren and Stimpy way. And the friendship between Steven and Connie. <sighs> My heart. And the last thing I watch is, yes, very hopeful and full of good feelings. Love, Simon, which is an adaptation of Simon and the Hobo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli. Obviously, this is like a very happy story. It has a happy ending. But there's like a core of darkness because it talks about like hard things like being queer and nobody knowing being queer and being blackmailed about it, the proper way to treat your friends. There's a lot of heavy things at the core of this movie. I thought the movie was excellent. That's a lot of stuff that we watched. I watched some more hopeful stuff and you watched a lot of dark stuff. There are two types of people. Well, Space Bees, that's what we've been watching. And now we're interested to know what you've been watching. So you should ping us on Twitter at FangirlPod or send us an email at FangirlHappyHour at gmail.com and let us know what you've been watching and what we should watch next. Maybe something happy. Yes, please. An absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green is a 2018 science fiction novel where the Carls just appear. One night, April May is walking home from work and she stumbles across a giant sculpture of a robot. She calls it Carl, does a video, and the next day it has gone viral. The story follows April as the Carls completely change her life and the way she engages with the world and her friends as well as herself. I've been reading John Green's books for a really long time, and I've always liked them. What I did not realize 
was that I was just waiting for Hank Green to write a book. <laughs> because I loved this book so much. Me too. And I thought it was actually better than any of Joan's books. I can't say that because John Green doesn't write science fiction. No, but the way that he writes female characters was much better. Than also, to be fair to John Green, he started writing when he was very young and learned a lot because almost all of his novels are dealing with something that got critiqued in a previous novel. It's very weird to read John Green novels and know and be able to track how he's learning. I'm okay when cis men want to learn. I'll take it. So Hank Green wrote this book after, you know, watching his brother read all the other books and after being on the internet during what I call the social justice generational shift. And so he had the benefit of all this knowledge about how to create women in stories that weren't exploitative, that weren't defined by the men in their lives. He had a lot of benefits. We didn't get to watch him going through his learning process so much in books as we did with John Green. So it's a lot easier to critique John Green's novels on gender because he did it out in the open. He learned in his books as he went. We are not going to get that same benefit in Hank's book because he got to learn all that stuff without writing a bunch of books because this was his first book. You are very generous, Renee. I know I'm very generous. I try to be generous with people who are at least trying. I know so many people offline who don't try people who talk to me about their books because they find out I'm a writer and then they want to talk to me for hours about their own book. And Anna, some of the stories in these books, some of the women in these stories in these books that these people are writing, holy fucking shit. Oh no. It's very easy to critique John Green for getting through the process. People don't know what they're missing in the slush piles. It's so much worse. I know this. You know this, yes, because you were a publisher. On the other hand, I do agree with a lot of the critiques of John Green's work, but I was very surprised to have felt so deeply about his work as a young adult, and now that I'm a full adult, to come to Hank's work and just like it so much better. Maybe not better. Maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it, because John Green doesn't write science fiction, and Hank Green does. They're doing two totally different things and exploring issues in different ways. There's looking at the universe through a realistic lens, and then there's looking to the universe uh, through a science fiction lens. And those are two incredibly different ways to tell stories. What surprises me the most is how I completely missed this. I saw it coming out. I don't think I saw a lot of reviews within the SFF community. So then my assumption went unchecked. I assumed it was another contemporary YA novel. I, f I don't know if it's because of the name. I don't know if it was because of the cover. Even though the cover has tiny robots in it, as I just realized. I didn't realize this was adult science fiction until you read it and you told me. I mean, I bought the book like right after it came out, but I was so busy with the campaign in 2018 that I didn't get to read it. I was always going to buy it no matter what, because I was going to read this book no matter what. I've been following John and Hank Green since February of 2007. For people who are not familiar with John and Hank Green and their vlog on YouTube, they started making videos back and forth in January of 2007. So I've been following them for a very, very long time. So there's probably some nostalgia in my reading in this book, too. This book is about fame, and I've watched them go from hardly any anybody knows who they are to being like worldwide famous. And that's also the plot of the book, because April May finds the Carl in New York and makes a video with 
her friend Andy Scamped and post a video of it. And she's like the one of the first people to get that video out in the world. So she slowly goes from completely unknown to one of the most foremost experts on the Carls. Because as it just so happens, they are from outer space. They are aliens. And they have appeared all over the world. There's pretty much one Carl in every major city in the world. And kind of because she was the first one to to find a Carl, she becomes the face of first contact with alien, with aliens. And it changes her whole life. After her video goes viral, she gets an agent. She becomes a star, basically, overnight. She's going on TV shows to talk about the Carls. This book is about the Carls and alien contact and what that means for us as a culture. But it's also really deep examination of how fame changes you as a person, how it can either make you a better person or a worse person, and how fame isn't predisposed to make you a better person. Fame itself is a a tool, so it's not inherently positive or negative, but it's very hard to use fame in a positive way as a human being, because human beings are so complicated. So even if you become famous and use it for good, there is going to be all these unintended consequences that you can't control. No matter what, it changes who you are. And if you are like April May, and you are already kind of like a jerk, (laughs) it just kind of like exaggerates that a little bit, extrapolates from that. April May is a huge asshole. Oh my god. She is one of the most likable, unlikable characters I have met in a long time. I liked her, but she was such an asshole. She was an asshole to her friends. She was an asshole to her girlfriend. She obviously had a couple of hangups that she had to deal with. Her inability of forming long attachments with romantic partners, for example, is one of them. Her tendency to be very self-involved. It all clashes with how she's just this really smart, savvy marketeer who knows how to play viewers and people. And she uses that. She says that she's using that for the good because she thinks the Carls are a force for the good in the world. But I I think she's also very egotistical and she relishes the attention that she's getting to. She's just really complex, really complicated. But yes, very, very unlikable, even though I really did like her. <laughs> Some of her unlikability is just because she reacts to situations she's put in in ways that a more generous patient person wouldn't. Then she just swallows things in ways that I found weird to her personality. She is a very complicated character and I think that's one of the reasons that I like this book so much is because there's no easy answers about April May. She's this very human character in a very fascinating way because she's not real, but she feels so real. She feels like somebody you know. Yeah, to the point where I was screaming at her out loud in the subway. I was like, April, no, what are you doing? She fucked up so much. Sometimes she learns from her mistakes. Most of the time she does not. She's also very generous, but in kind of a transactional way. Where she brings people along with her, but only as so long as they're useful. And I can't tell you how fucking real that felt to somebody who has trouble, like, making attachments with other people, like emotional attachments. And I thought you had a really good way of coming full circle 
towards the ending when she realizes that she was also used by the Carls, right? So she felt like, oh, what she does to people, it was done to her. Not a great feeling, huh, April May? Exactly. But at the same time, we also don't have a lot of answers with regards to what the Carls want and what they will or won't do. But there is a really great thing about the novel on how humanity comes together, working together for a common goal and uniting in their pacifist way of trying to address the cause. Even despite those who try to go like, no, we have to destroy the triplets, arm ourselves and be jerks about it. One of the things that I super loved about this novel is the way that Green knows fandom, like intimately knows how fandom works. Once the dreaming starts and people start trying to solve the puzzles in the dreams, they try to figure out how to coordinate what they're finding and they build this app and this community that is 100% fandom right there. We need to do this thing, so let's build this tool and get together and do it. And I'm thinking of when Delicious, the bookmarking site died or Yahoo killed it or whatever. And the pinboard guy came and was like, hey, tell me what you need. And Fandom made it this huge Google Doc full of like our requests of stuff that we needed to make pinboard work for us as a bookmarking site as Fandom. Or when people kept telling me over and over, voting in the Hugos is really hard. I never know what's eligible. And I don't know what category it's eligible in. And I went, you know what? We could solve this. We could just make a crowdsourced spreadsheet. It just shows this very intimate knowledge of how Fandom's function, how they can spring up overnight, how if they're given the right tools, they can change the world. And I love that about this novel, that recognition of fandom organization. I thought it was super great to see that type of Spanish organization recognized in a positive way. The Carl community isn't like an inherent negative. That's not where the tension in the novel comes from. The fandom does not seem toxic. The toxicity comes from April May herself because she has so many unaddressed issues and also the people she keeps picking fights with instead of ignoring like she should. Exactly. Exactly. She's just like, she can't control herself. Because responding recognizes and legitimizes those people. So some of the other characters in the book, they're not all as well drawn as April is, but two of them I think are worth mentioning. So Maya is April's girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend. Although I get like this vibe from them that Maya loves April dearly, but can't be with her as long as April can't deal with her own issues. And so it's like, it's a choice she's making to stay away, except she doesn't actually stay away. She like secretly joins the Carl community, but also unhealthy Maya. And then the president of the United States, who is not named, just remains the president of the United States. Who is totally Hillary Clinton. It's a woman. A capable, <laughs> competent woman. We see you, Hank Green. <laughs> we see what you're doing. If he had been Donald Trump, can you imagine? The Carls would have been blown up. Exactly. Those two characters specifically were super fascinating to me because they were so different than April. You have a lot of women in this book who are very, very different, even from each other. They're obviously different from April May. April May is her own thing, super well drawn but all the other women in the book are also their own people they sound different that is so rare when i read books by cis men 
and I admit I don't read a lot of books about cis men anymore because I got so tired of the women seeming like the just a cardboard cutouts of each other. So that might be I might just be odd because I haven't read a ton of books about cis men recently, and this was my first one in a while. But I was just very impressed. And it ends on a horrible cliffhanger, and we know there's going to be a sequel. After the book ended, I didn't actually realize there was going to be a sequel. I got so angry that I went online and Googled and found out that there was going to be a sequel. And I'm like, okay, I don't have to send you an angry email. Good. (laughs) I know his email. I could send him an email being like, what the actual fuck? But luckily he's on it. He's writing a sequel, which is good because I think that there's a lot of things that, you know, didn't get talked about. I want to talk about something and I want you to stick with me for just one second because I think it's maybe not well formed in my head yet. The crawl community forms online. They have an app. They have this whole online community. But then you have the people offline who surround the Carls. And the online community is never like treated like a toxic thing. But the offline community is treated as this very scary, uncontrollable thing. So we never get any negativity from like the online community. But then the first like big gathering outside of a Carl when April goes to the New York Carl goes outside against like explicit instructions not to go outside. Of course she does. Why wouldn't she? And gets hurt and the Carls like protect her. I thought that was a very interesting contrast. Online community, super friendly and welcoming and safe. And then take the fandom offline and put it in a big group of people. And it easily, easily becomes uncontrollable and dangerous and toxic. Which is separate from, like, Carl, like, attacking somebody. But just, like, the comparison of those two things, I thought was very, very interesting. Coming from this author specifically, who has been famous online, like, quote-unquote, famous online, and then has done offline events. And it's not a really well-formed thought, but I thought it was an interesting comparison, like, to look at those two different ways of interacting with Carl's online versus offline. I do not have a thesis to this. It's just something that occurred to me i'm just curious if it's going to come up in the second book i don't know if there is such a dichotomy because i think there was some toxicity online too because that's where the villains were coming from and then there were really nice people outside as well who helped them the toxicity online was coming from the villains there was a, a competing fandom. There are there were two separate fandoms. There were there was one fandom that was for the Carls, but there was also another fandom that was against the Carls, who were also working together. That's not a fandom, though. Why not? Well, because they were not fans. Fandom is about gathering about what you care about and what you love. They love America. Guess what? We don't we don't we don't call those fans. We call those Nazis. We don't call them fans. So we call them Nazis. Oh, burn! Act like a Nazi, get called a Nazi. Oh, well. Yeah, I'm really interested in reading the sequel to this. I can't wait for it. It's like, I'm super excited about the sequel for this book. Me too, but is he still writing it? So it's not coming out this year, is it? No, probably not. I think he was still working on it last time that I read something about about it on his Twitter. Somewhere. How many Space Bees are you going to give this book? I'm giving it five. Anna, I am also giving it five. Ten space bees for Hank Green. I know, right? What a surprise. I did not see that coming. Dear Space Bees, I would like to know whether you've read this novel and if you have, what you thought about it. Please ping us on Twitter at FangirlPod or send us an email at FangirlHappy at gmail.com letting us know your thoughts. I know at least one of you out there probably love this book and we want to hear from you.
The Craft is a 1996 American supernatural horror film about four outcast teenage girls in Los Angeles who come together and do some magic with terrible, terrible consequences. The Craft was really popular at the time. It was a surprise hit, and it later became kind of cultish. But I was part of the group that saw it when it was like a surprise hit. It became very big in my friends group when it came out on VHS. Although I will be honest and upfront in that I like the soundtrack of this movie better than I like this movie. Although the movie's pretty good too. What are your thoughts about the craft? I am fascinated to hear them because this feels like very much my generation's media and not so much your generation's media. I remember watching it at the time, but I I did not go to the movie, so I probably watched it on VCR too. But I don't have any strong feelings or strong memories of it. And I really want to know why. So can you please illuminate for me why was this so successful and why it became a cult movie? I think because young girls who are around my age really identified with it a whole lot. I think that's one of the reasons that when I rewatched it, I felt really connected to it. Not so much for the magic stuff, but for the ways in which teenage girls could be both super supportive of one another but also incredibly toxic. And I really feel like that's why. Yeah, I don't know. I thought movie-wise, I can see what you're saying. And as I was watching it again yesterday, I was thinking about how when I was 15, I was super into witchcraft too. I kept reading texts and getting candles. And I had a friend that we talked about vampires and witches. So that part was really relatable for me, but not the rest, because I thought it just escalated so fast. But then again, I just read on the news today that three girls beat a fourth girl to death over a boy here in England. And it was the witchcraft. I mean, the mo- the people who made the movie definitely said that they made up Manal. They made that up completely because they didn't want teenage girls rushing out to like invoke actual pagan deities on the beach. They were very clear that they knew what who their target audience was. And so, yeah, I think the witchcraft was like the surface reason that people would come to it. But I also think that people would see themselves in all the girls in a way that maybe wouldn't occur to them consciously. It felt like a very subconscious movie. It was extremely savvy in the way that it like talked about issues, but it never actually talked about them. Like, for example, Sarah tried to commit suicide and she failed. And her family moved her completely to another town to for a fresh start. And the movie never like comes out and says, the reason that why you were hallucinating and feeling so lost and disconnected was because you lost your mom and your mom was the witch. And now you're having all these powers as you grow up and you don't know how to deal with them. They made you depressed. They made you anxious. They made you suicidal. And the movie never like explicitly says it, but it hints around it a whole lot. It does that about... It's all of them. Like Rochelle's, her racial isolation, even in her own friend group, and Bonnie Bonnie's shame about her physical appearance, and Nancy's just fury over being poor. All these girls have something that the people who watched it probably identified with, even if they didn't realize that they were identifying with it at the time. And also, who doesn't want that type of power over people who are cruel to them? Mm-hmm. So it's like a wish fulfillment thing. That was the most 
impactful aspect of, of the movie for me, yes. But there were also like a couple of, I know that sounds like nitpicking completely. I understand that. But for example, it took me right off the scene. So when Bonnie was undergoing that procedure uh, back and that had that machine that kept just like punching her on the back for the treatment and, and it felt and it shows that it was very painful and I was like why is this procedure so painful there is no reason why this girl couldn't have been given any painkillers <laughs> I know what they were trying to do but it's like when it took me out it's like this this treatment would not be done without some serious anesthetics guys can you tell this movie was uh, directed by a dude <laughs> Directed by Andrew Fleming. Written by Andrew Fleming, Peter Filardi. Produced by Douglas Wick. Do you think any of these dudes cared about the fact that this would be a procedure with anesthetic? No. They cared about showing a girl in pain. Let's be real. As you say, it takes people it takes like adult women out, right? Completely. Yeah. So yes, I, I I agree with you. So I think the most fascinating aspect of this film for me was Nancy. Nancy is poor. Nancy lives in a pretty abusive home. Her mom's pretty disconnected. Her stepdad is super gross and molesty. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of gave me that vibe. Nancy's looking for power and control over her life. And during the movie, we see her go from poor and then she basically causes her stepdad to have a heart attack and die. And suddenly, her and her mom have all this money. It was really funny. $175,000. In today's money, that would be basically $290,000. I don't know how to express how, like, if you're poor, what a life-changing amount of money that is. But it's also a very dangerous amount of money for somebody who doesn't, who ha- doesn't have money and doesn't know how to manage money to suddenly have to manage. And I think the movie kind of shows that because they have this really expensive apartment her mom bought a jukebox with nothing but like songs from one artist. Connie Francis. That whole scene foreshadowed what was going to happen to Nancy when it came to the power from Manon. Because we saw what happened when her mom got all the money. Her mom made very bad decisions. And so it's foreshadowed what's going to happen to Nancy through her mom with the money. But it's a little, it's a little offset because of Sarah. We see Sarah being like afraid of that power. Like, it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. Nancy thought it would solve all her problems, but Sarah always realized that the power couldn't solve all the problems, that you had personal responsibility over your life. Nancy just thought the power was going to make everything better automatically. And so when I first watched this film as a teenager, a lot of my friends loved Nancy. Like, they loved her. They identified with her, like, very heavily. And I could understand that because a lot of my friends were poor. And that sort of fantasy where you go from being poor to having money and power and influence over people who once scorned you, it's really addicting. And so even as a teenager, I watched this movie way differently. And I was very much Sarah in my approach to money and power and influence. Like, everybody, all my friends, like, got really into it because, you know, oh, magic and witchcraft and these girls are, like, showing the, their enemies what for. But I never could do that. I really internalized that what you send out comes back to you times three, which I got from Madeline L. Engel, A Wind in the Door. It's a sequel to A Wrinkle in Time. In the book, they talk about the villains. They are called Ectroy. And Ectroy and name people, they X them out of the universe. They take away their identity and they erase them. 
that concept of unnaming people and what you put into the universe being how the universe treats you like really stuck with me and actively changed the way I interacted with this movie as a teen. Well, as as an adult, so I'm, it's 1996, right? So I was 20 years old. Maybe I was a little bit too old for that because I didn't get any of that at the time. And if I if I watched it, I probably watched it on VCR. So that was probably would have been probably about a couple of years later. And watching it now, I do appreciate Sarah a lot more than the other girls. Although I quite liked Rochelle. Rochelle got really quickly how poisonous the power was going to be. And the movie was actually really good at showing her realizing it, too. It didn't stop her from going along with Nancy's plot, which was super mean. But it showed her at least caring a little bit about her actions. The movie didn't show Bonnie caring at all. This movie is a very generational piece of media. This movie is pretty pretty solid for what it is. Like It, it kind of actually holds up. But also, I like the soundtrack more. I am the sun. I am the air. You don't have any other... Am I the only one with feelings about the craft? My other feeling was that, like, Russell and I, we were watching it. And we were like, oh, we recognize most of these actresses. And we have seen them doing other things apart from Rochelle's. Mm-hmm. Who is the only African-American Rachel True got to be in Sharknado 2, the second one, which is kind of an indictment of our whole Hollywood structure. She's a pretty good actress. Yeah. Nobody gave her a chance to do any other stuff. Thanks a lot, Hollywood, for nothing. Indeed. Well, how many space bees would you give this movie? Three and a pot of honey. I'm giving it four. I think you, you took away a lot more than I did from it, which is great. Space Bees, have you seen the craft recently? Do you remember anything about it? If you have thoughts, please let us know on Twitter at FangirlPod or send us an email at FangirlHappyHour at gmail.com. Anna, I have looked at our show notes for our Obsessed segment where we talk about things that we're obsessed with, and I have no clue what yours means, so I need you to explain it to me now. Have you heard of the Operation Car Wash that is happening in Brazil for the past five years, I think? No. Okay, so it's such a complicated thing. We've had two presidents from the left-wing party, from the Workers' Party. The first one was Lula, who was the who was the next president to Brazil, and he bridged the gap between the very poor and the very rich, and that kind of like rankled the middle class. And he he spent two terms in office, and then he was followed by a woman, a first female president, who was also an excellent person, excellent president, but her term, her second term, ended with impeachment in a farce of immense proportions. And Lula himself is in jail now for corruption, even though there is no proof against him. And all of those were brought forward by this Operation Car Wash, which was an operation that the federal police and prosecutors from a, from a state in the south of Brazil started to arrest corrupt members of our government. And they caught a lot of people. But it was very, very clear from the start that even though there were revelations about members from all political parties, they were only interested in getting to those who were from the left. 
And then the judge who ran this operation did a couple of things that made the situation for Lula and the female president worse and which led directly to the election of our current Nazi president. And he's now, surprise, the minister for justice in this government. Have you heard of Grant Greenwald? Yeah. So the journalist who worked with uh, Snowden and the whole NSA thing. As it just so happens, he is married to a Brazilian politician and he lives in Brazil and they have two sons. He opened a newspaper in Brazil and as of two weeks ago, he got a hold of hacked documents that showed exactly what, what this Operation Car Wash was all about, how they were biased and how they were a sham. And all of these documents are just coming to light now. And it's been the most fulfilling two weeks of my life. He releases a little bit of information and then the judge goes around and he says, oh, no, because this and this and that. And then he releases a second batch of information that completely discredits what the judge had just said. It's just so beautiful. And this is happening in Brazil right now. And they want to extradite Glenn Greenwald from Brazil now because of that. This is what I'm being obsessed with, especially with posting this information for my family. I'm very happy you've been able to post a lot of stuff to your family on Facebook. <laughs> and what about you? What have you been obsessed with? Who loves to knit, Anna? I love to knit. I love to knit so much. I forget. Like, I get really busy, and then I don't knit for a while, and then I start knitting again. I'm like, I love this. This is so great. So basically, when I say I'm upset, been obsessed with knitting, I've been like going through Ravelry because I want to learn how to make hand warmers. But I think you need to know how to use double-pointed needles for those. So you have to use more than one needle. And I have never done that before. But I've like been watching a lot of tutorials and knitting a scarf that I was really, like, really, really overdue. I wonder. It's coming along, but I'm going to... Is gonna... it a black and green one? I don't know. Maybe. And uh, I'm going to run out of yarn. I didn't buy enough yarn for the scarf. So I'm going to have to buy more yarn and then wait for the yarn to get here. There is this blanket that Knit Picks has a pattern for. It's called like the rainbow blanket. And it has like 10 colors. And it's nothing but it's nothing but garter stitch. It's a garter stitch blanket. So it's just the same stitch over and over and over again in rainbow colors. And I really want to make it. You said some words that I have no idea what they are. Yeah, garter stitch is this the standard knit stitch. Okay. <laughs> However, I want to learn to crochet because I want to learn how to make little stuffed bees. Uh. I got to find somebody who knows how to crochet to teach me because I'm trying to use the online videos and it's fucking hard. I don't understand why crochet is so hard when I've been knitting for years. That's what I've been obsessed with. I will leave a link to the blanket that I want to make in our show notes, the Mighty Stitch Blanket, to see if anybody else wants to make the blanket. Fangirl Happy Hour is supported by our space bees in the Patreon hive, who keep us motivated to become the best podcasters that we can be. Thanks go especially to our $5 patrons. Thanks to Trans and Dancing, Amanda, Robin, Philip, Ms. Modavella, and Mark. To Mario, Daniel, Tiara, KJ, Karen, and Jocelyn. Thank you. A huge thanks to Jen, Hedwig, Alisa, Dervla, and Claire. To Lisa M., Chelsea, Brandy, Anne-Marie, and Amy. You're great. You've been listening to Finger Happy Hour. Please send us a list of your favorite media so far this year. 
Our podcasting team includes Susan, who transcribes all of our episodes, as well as our show artist, Ira. Their work's available at fangirlhappyhour.com. Our show team also includes you. If you're listening, you are making Fangirl Happy Hour possible. Don't forget to drink some water, contact all your reps, and follow the Possum Every Hour Twitter account. It is exactly what it says, and it is wonderful. It is so wonderful. Thanks for listening to our show, Space Bees. See you next episode. <laughs> that should be our new music. I should have got more sleep. It's the title of my memoir. I think Anna forgot how to make squares. <laughs> Did you forget how to make squares again? I did. I was like, I'm just going to add some brackets. <laughs> All you do is hit enter. I know. Now that you said it, it's become patently clear and I remember it. You don't know what red and snippy is, do you? No. If you're listening, you're making fangirl. Listen, I want to express the fact that we finished on time. It's one o'clock. I know. Fantastic. I'm going to have some cheese to celebrate. Is some, some nut butter. <laughs>